Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today, welcome back, Caleb Wells. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Hey, good. You were out last week, but uh, now you're yeah. freezing cold. Yeah, it was uh, 67-something yesterday, and overnight it dropped down to mid-30s, and I'm wearing gloves inside and fingerless gloves, right? And But, you know, it's all right. It's just, you know. Oh, the pains of New Orleans. Yeah. I'm telling you, man. It was mid-30s, raining, <laughs> flash floods. Yeah. <laughs> it was like it was like three degrees here, like Monday or Tuesday morning. So Yeah, yeah I think that, we've discussed this before. Here. I can't do the north. I've been <laughs> I've done it before, I ain't doing it again. <laughs> yeah. And our other co host, Wailu. Hey Sean, hey Don. Good. Good. How are you? I'm good, but um Probably a word of warning in case I sound a little tired or incoherent later on. I'm a little bit hungover, so because um, <laughs> as you know, it's, it's like nine o'clock here, and um, I had a few drinks, a few more, few drinks than I thought I would last night. So yeah, I'm okay, but yeah. um, <laughs> like slight headache. So you go out to the clubs or just at home? No, just uh, one of my friends had a birthday, so we just had yeah. a had a little thing at the, at the house. Um, still not that confident cool. about going to bars here yet, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know. All right, let's bring on our guest. Welcome, Andy Watt. Hey, y'all. Thanks very much. I appreciate the invite. Oh, yeah, thank no you for problem. joining us. Not a problem. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But... What I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So Andy, why don't you kind of get us started by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself, you know, uh, what you do and how you got into development and uh, .NET? Sounds good. So I've been, uh, I've been coding with .NET since 2005. I, I started on a student placement in a, in a local company working on, on web forums with 1.1. And I've essentially worked with every version of it since, more or less. I think I've worked just about every part of .NET over the years, including Silverlight. Which I, I can still knock out a Silverlight app. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's there's some purpose in uh, in that. I quite liked it. I, I maintain that the Silverlight developer environment was was one of the best that I've I've worked in from a from a web standpoint. These days, I am still working with .NET, but I, I'm working more on sort of web technologies, so more in the in the Angular React space. And uh, and as I as I mentioned, a little bit of uh, of blockchain work. Um, aside from aside from working, I guess so I'm I'm based in Scotland, so we've got ample opportunity for for outdoor stuff so i like to get out and play in the hills whenever i get a chance which isn't very often <laughs> because you know uh, weather permitting nice very nice. cool whenever i think of scotland i can't help but think about uh the movie highland <laughs> yeah so, there can be all... it's, it's one of my favorite movies so it's it's good <laughs> at least you didn't say braveheart that's not that's not so well thought of <laughs> <laughs> nope there no. can be only one <laughs> all right 
enough, enough Scottish jokes. So, all right. So, uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit about uh, dev containers. So, where should we start, Andy? What's the, what's the first thing to know about dev containers in development? Okay, so I guess it's a it's a relatively new concept. I suppose everyone's kind of gotten used to this idea that Docker is has eaten the world in terms of production and deployment and whatnot. But I think it's uh, I, I guess it's less well known that it's coming for development environments as well. It, it was it, it was kind of my my gateway into Docker, I suppose, was when I realized that you could you could do this with it. So the the idea is that you know how with a with a Docker container, I guess, if you put your production stuff into Docker, then you don't have to worry about dependencies anymore. You just you just send it to Docker and, and everything works. You know, this this kind of the the end of the infrastructure as code idea. So the, the dev containers thing extends that to the development environment and it makes sort of development environment as code, if you like. So all of the local dependencies that you would need to install on your on your machine to get a project to run, you instead specify them in a Docker container, and then you develop in that Docker container. It's it's quite a clever thing. So I say I, sh- I probably should add that it's uh, specific to Visual Studio Code. It's a, it's an extension for Visual Studio Code. And what what essentially happens is that everything, all the the actual extensions and, and whatnot that you need, run run in the container, and then it surfaces it through onto the the actual Visual Studio Code interface on your on your actual machine. And that's it. That really is it. You know, it's uh, so you could you can pull a repo from from GitHub or or wherever you like. As soon as you open that repo in, in Visual Studio Code, it, it pops up and says, I notice that there's a dev container folder here. Would you like to reopen in, in Docker? And you just say, yep, it spins up the containers. Nothing really changes as far as the as far as the user is concerned. But then, but just like that, any of the project dependencies are are, are ready to go, you know? And that, that, that would include, like, so for example, if you're depending on a specific version of .NET, that does include that. But you can, of course, you can extend that with Docker. And you can have multiple containers. So as well as the you know the .NET or the Angular dependencies that you need, you could also run a Postgres database or, or any other database for that matter in a different container. You could have another container that was responsible for executing your tests. You know, and these things these things move with the repo and they're they're set up instantly. You know, we had so how uh, VS Code is it? No, go ahead. Go ahead. We had Michael Jolly on a while back, and we talked about the containers in, in uh, one of the episodes. And he went through how to use Docker with SQL Server, right? And mm-hmm. to even include your your databases and connecting things back and forth. And he said he hasn't run SQL Server on his local machine in years. Yeah. Right. That's I can definitely see a lot of benefits in using Docker. Pulling them down from GitHub and spinning it up, that sounds cool. But from from like a more of an enterprise scope, how would you how would you go about handling that? From an enterprise scope, you mean so? If, so if you've got, if you've got, if you've already got services and APIs and several apps infrastructure, would you recommend this route, Visual Studio Code, with the with the this extension, or do you think it you're better off sticking with Visual Studio itself? I think very much sort of case by case, right? It's not a one size fits all, that's for sure. And you, you, you do have to justify it. You know, if you're so if you're doing .NET development and you're using Visual Studio Code instead of Visual Studio, you, you do kind of have to justify yourself, I think, if you're if you are gonna go down that route. So I think it would depend on how complex the dev environment setup is, basically. You have to get some value for it. If you've got like a, a fairly bog standard .NET SQL Server database and everyone's running on the same, maybe not so much. 
But if you have a number of dependencies or a particularly complicated setup, then you start to get value for it. The other thing is if you're if you're adding new team members regularly, then you can get a significant sort of onboarding benefit. I mean, I'm sure that every one of us have been there when you know you sit down at a, a new project or a new company, and it's an absolute nightmare to get it to run. You know, you go through the readme file and it still doesn't work, and then you get the resident expert in to tell you how it actually works, and then he phones the other expert who eventually sorts it out. You know, like all of that melts away if you. If you do this like development environment as code, but you could use Docker in Visual Studio, right? It's just that the Docker extension is available on Visual Studio Code, yeah. So, so you could, in theory, still have a Docker image for developers that they that they grab, uh, and you can still use Visual Studio um, to use it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? There's there's still a huge benefit in setting up the the dependencies. You know, if you set up like well, the database is the classic example, right? So if you set up the database in Docker and, and you can just spin that up with a you know, Docker Compose mm-hmm. up, then yeah, sure, you're, then you're not tied to it. But the real benefit of it is that if you, if you use these dev containers, then everything comes with you. So when you're, if you open the terminal in Visual Studio Code, the terminal is in the Docker container and you can have all mm-hmm. of your dependencies, testing frameworks, everything uh, installed into that. Nice, okay. There is the other sort of benefit, I guess, of doing this is that you can also, you can define this, the specific extensions that you want for that particular container. So if you've got a, an Angular project with, karma tests and and whatnot then you can have all of the angular extensions for visual studio code and the karma test runner installed and then if you've got a dotnet project separately you can specify the dotnet extensions in the x unit uh, test runner and then when when you open up each project there the environment is configured specifically for what you're trying to do mm. now there's been some recent changes with uh, docker licensing especially a uh, Docker desktop and a lot of companies have kind of you know really tr- cut back on how many people are using it and things like that. So is this something you could do like directly into WSL or containers somewhere that way? I'm not familiar with it enough to, to know. I believe so. So I, I've always just used Docker Desktop. It's still fine for, for me. I think you've got to be over 250 employees, I believe, before, before you have to yeah, pay for it. Employee limit and then there's a revenue and I think over $10 million for the company or, or 250 people. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm a good way off both of those. <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing uh, is, so uh, we've been looking at Docker, which is probably more than a year away, because we've got like 10 terabytes of SQL stuff that we're going to have to purge and clean up. But our backend architect is doing some testing with it. And then the, the notice came up that depending on your situation, you have to pay for it. And we have more than 250 employees and that level of revenue. So they're like, uh, we're not sure we want to do this. And we're like, well, this is pretty much our option. <laughs> we want to containerize, especially on the desktop, right? So, but it's pretty, you know, we're all programmers here, right? And everyone balking at paying for code is, uh, <laughs> we've got to be careful with that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it can yeah, be a little silly. We're balking <laughs> at it. Yeah. It, it's the companies that are balking at it, especially if they have a large development group. Yeah. And once they've been, once they've gotten used to getting something for free, I guess they want to continue getting that thing for free. Yeah. Cause personal use and things like that is, is still free. So that's not a problem. For yeah. Them. Yeah. Right. All right. Yeah. And this isn't the first thing that we've so, run up against, right? Open source and free versus paid. And we've had several people, the, the show, the podcast, where you know I I use their their tooling on a daily basis, so I find open source to be very important. But I do know that some companies, you know, either they shy away from open source for security reasons, or they go all in because it's cheap, and then the model changes, and they're like, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. It's 
uh, an interesting place to be in right now. Yeah. And there's always the sort of the issues, you know, there was that recent one where somebody intentionally broke their uh, their package and took down half the half the internet and there's there's just no protection against that you know if you're if you're using these things for free then you have you almost have no right to complain if something like that happens you know you're you're taking a risk yeah i think you're talking about left pad yeah <laughs> but yeah so um how much do you have to be familiar with docker to in, in order to use this extension i mean do you have to know about how to do images and and the configuration and all that kind of stuff or will visio studio do most of that for you so I would say it helps you know obviously like the more the more you know the the more able you are to, to fix this but essentially it'll do it for you if you if you install the extension and you hit f1 and and just type in dev containers then you can get it to automatically set up for any number of of environments that you might want you know .NET, node rust you know you name it there's there's templates there and you can do the same with a with a docker compose so you, you can make it do it for you but i have I have found that it's it's quite tricky to set it up sometimes. You know, you're never going to just want the default, right? You're always going to want something else for a, for for a realistic project, and then you are then you're kind of in modifying the the Docker files. So I would say that you can you can get going with it, but the more knowledge that you have of how it's actually working under the hood, the better for sure. And then and then you you check that Docker image into source code. I'm guessing, right, along with the project to say if you're a developer on this project, you should. You know, take this um, and, and yeah, run it. that's right. right. So if you if if you go through the automatic setup, it creates a .dev container folder in your project with the with the Docker file in it, and that gets checked in. And then when you open a folder in Visual Studio Code that has got a .docker file folder in it, it'll assuming you've got the extension installed, of course, it will pop up and, and offer you to open it in it. So it's a very very seamless process once it's set up. Mm. And in terms, of, so you know, you know, you're asking about like the required knowledge for someone to use it. There's very little required knowledge, but for someone to set it up, you do. You know, it kind of goes without saying. I suppose you need to understand what you're doing with it. Mm. Yeah, I have a couple of questions around C sharp, right? Because most of my uh, .NET development I do in Visual Studio, and then Angular development yeah. typically I've done in VS Code. How have you found the experience in VS Code? Because I haven't done C sharp there for years. Yeah, pros and cons. To be honest, I've I've been wanting to like it for years. I I wrote an article in two thousand and seventeen, so nearly five years ago now, like going through how you could set up Visual Studio Code for C sharp development. And at the time, it was quite painful. You know, the the extensions that you need are not perfect. It doesn't work one hundred percent of the time, and that's kind of still the case. To be honest, right? Like I I do do it because I just I like this idea that Visual Studio Code does everything. But but if I'm being honest, I find myself switching to Visual Studio sometimes just because. OmniSharp has crashed again, or something like that, you know. So yeah, it's it's unfortunate that it's it's not quite there yet because there's no reason for it, you know. Like Visual Studio Code is fantastic for just about everything else, you know, Angular, React, you, you know, you name it, it's good. It's just it's got this like slight weakness for C Sharp, which is a pity. But I, I try I try and use it as much as possible, and then have a tantrum occasionally and, and switch back. <laughs> <laughs> and then my other question is when. The Docker container is created for this dev folder. Can you also use that same image in Visual Studio because it has Docker support and, and have it spin up there? Or is it slightly different or is it, is it built specifically for that VS Code extension? The last time I checked, which I, which is actually a couple of months ago now, it was specifically for the VS Code extension. But it does seem like the kind of thing that Microsoft might look to build into their sort of flagship environment. Okay. It seems like it might be getting tested in, in VS Code and seeing how the the community likes it. So so when we're talking about the dev dependencies that are in the Docker um, container, are you 
like what are we talking about? We're talking about the database. Are we talking about the the NuGet packages and all that stuff? Are we talking about even the the actual VS extensions that you might need as well, or um, how much of it goes into the container? Everything. So you know, like you know, if you, if you spin up like a, a bog standard Docker container and you try and do anything, you know, if you type .NET build, you know, it doesn't have anything whatsoever. So you have to put everything into it. You have no access to your to your host machine anymore. Yeah. So uh, like literally anything from the .NET core build tools and command line tools and so even your IDE itself like is Visual Studio code itself inside the Docker container and you're running it off of that or is it so Visual Studio uh, sorry Microsoft have done something quite clever with that so every like Visual Studio code is almost like a client server application now inherently which like the the front end that you see is like the client and everything else is happening on the on the server and that's uh I forget the name of it now they're they're you know they've done that thing where they put um, Visual Studio code into the browser yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not yeah, Sig- yeah. They're not yeah, using yeah. Sigma R. I forget what they're using, but yeah, it's yeah. an Electron app, isn't yeah. it? I heard. Yeah, so it's kind of like that, right? So, like, so for example, if you host a website in Docker on your local machine, right, and then you hit it on your browser, then you can surface. You can essentially surface like a UI from the Docker app. Mm-hmm. And the way that Visual Studio Code works now is like that. That's how it works with WSL as well. So it's kind of it's kind of tapping mm-hmm. into the same technology as that. So you, you know, as far as it's concerned, everything on the back end is running in this like Linux Docker environment, but and then the front end is, is surfacing your machine more like a a client. Yep. So I'm looking at Visual Studio Code right now in the extensions list. It looks like the actual extension is called Remote Containers. Yes. So if people are looking for it, there, yeah, look for Remote Containers as the extension, and there's even a, an extension pack for it. So. There's some things there to get started. So, so what's, what's kind of some good use cases for for why you would set up your your development environment in, in this manner? So, I think that anything where you've where you've got a large number of dependencies, right? So, the thing that put me into it first was a uh, was a blockchain project. I was trying to run a blockchain locally so that I could do local development, and nobody else in the team had any of the tools installed. You know, like literally none of them. And so I was able to just set up, set, I was able to just add this dev container to it and just say, right, folks, pull the repo now. When it install the extension, when it pops up, just say go. And that's it. You know, they can build, they can build the contracts, they can deploy the contracts. There's two containers running. One of them's got the blockchain, one of them's for the dev environment. So that was like the, uh, that was the gateway drug, if you like. But I think any time that you've got like a number of, of, of additional services, you know, like I'm thinking about one where we had like a Slack service running and that had to get, you know, had to get that set up locally with databases running that to get set up locally so anywhere where you've got a number of different services you know how it goes right like sometimes you can just pull a repo and just type run and it goes and then sometimes it's not like that the times when it's not like that i think you can really benefit from uh, from setting this up and additionally you know if you're doing something that's a little bit unusual like you know you can be fairly certain that most people have got or most dot, you know all c sharp developers have got net installed in their machine but if you're doing something a little bit more exotic like for example, I was setting up Rust on my machine today, which I which I hadn't which I hadn't done before, and th- there's a dev container for that. So you know you wouldn't necessarily expect people to have Rust set up if you're if you're doing a Rust project. It might be a good use case. Yeah, absolutely. Time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software, and our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified, with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. 
Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun Alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customer peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage plans start from as little as $4 per month with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. And I've actually, previous job, right? Like you said, I pulled down containers for a RabbitMQ and you know things of that nature. And you spin up the container and able to, to utilize it and access it. And then when you don't need any more, you just spin it back down, which definitely simplifies things. Yeah, it's great for freelancing. I've done like I'm I'm gainfully employed as it were just now, but I have done freelancing in the past. And you know, if you've got like a, a number of different projects with different versions of of this and that and the next thing on your machine as well, if you can dev container all of that, you know, you can you can switch between one and the other without polluting your your host, which is really useful. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think and yeah. and Sean's brought up WSL before, right? The Windows subsystem for Linux, which I find yeah. really cool. Every time I get into that, I'm like, it's just, it's cool how they get that working. In your post, in your blog, right, You where you talk about the dev container, you recommend using WSL. Is that just because with Docker and Linux, you've got a smaller footprint and, and it's not resource intensive? Or are there other reasons? So, yeah, I just use WSL by default these days, I guess. it's uh, It works it works nicer with with a lot of with a lot of development stuff these days. And I guess that's turned around quite quickly, especially as like a, as a .NET developer, you know, when I was used to just to never using Linux, I suppose. But even these days, like installing uh, .NET on Linux is extremely easy and very sort of user-friendly, I think. So So yeah, I would, I would say just from a general point of view, like using WSL for, for your daily drivers is worth a, it's worth a go. You know, it will work. Everything will work fine if you if you don't use that. So I guess it's almost like a personal preference thing. I'm not sure if I can give a good technical reason for it. Um, I'm just saying, I know from previous experience, of course, this is several years back, so it could have changed, but right, trying to run Docker desktop and using your Windows system, which means you have to have the more the, the Windows container stuff and the resources are different. And I think the... Hyper-V can, can factor in. It it made more sense to do it in Linux, but back then you didn't really have the WSL you have now. So, hmm. yeah, I'm hey, if you can run it in Linux, well, these days, if you can run anything in Linux, I'm all for it, right? Much smaller yeah. footprint, <laughs> typically. Yeah, I'm not sure how it works with Docker these days. I think that the whole Windows, WSL, and Docker sort of system is quite complex because you still install it on Windows and then it's available in WSL. I'm honestly not sure how all of that hangs together. So through through your time using this, um, what kind of lessons have you learned? You know, what kind of things you know can you not do? Is there limitations in approaching things this way, or is it pretty much just like just doing normal development? It is well once it's once it's up and running. It is, yeah. I, I mean, there's definitely a setup overhead. You know, there's no sort of getting away from that. Like getting everything working in Docker can be a little bit painful at times, and there's got to be some there's got to be some value in doing that. And it, it's it's quite new. You know, it doesn't always work a hundred percent of the time. I guess I've I've had days where I've been kind of tearing my hair out. Days is an exaggeration. Hours maybe where I've been tearing my hair out a little bit trying to get it to work. You know, and just thinking like, God, if I hadn't set it up this way, <laughs> it would be so much easier. Because it but, is, but, isn't, but isn't that the point? The the docking container means it should always work the same all the time. Well, only when you're making changes, you're saying 
doesn't work. Yeah, please. yeah, making sure. I think so. I think I started using it in in the early days of the extension being available, and it was a little bit buggy at times, which was yeah. a, a, a little frustrating. As, as but you know, if you expose yourself to, to new tech like that, then you should expect to to get some gray hairs for it. That's just part of the fun of being on the cutting edge, I suppose, isn't it? Oh, yeah. there's, there's one like <laughs> there, yeah. <laughs> there's one mega gotcha, which is if you don't specify, you know, you think that you think because you defined it in a in a de- in a container that everyone in the team is running the same versions of things but if you don't specify which exact versions you want then the versions are defined by when you've built the image not by when you're running the image mm. and that that did cause some issues because it was a little bit unclear to me at first that that's what was happening so it's worth uh when you when you build a docker file specify the version of everything that you want and fix it what about the version of docker itself do you reckon that affects the run running of the docker container like do you have to make sure that all the devs are running the exact same docker version that's a very good question, which I don't have an answer to. <laughs> I've, I've not mm. encountered any problems with that, but I, mean, I think in theory with Docker, it shouldn't matter. Every I think that their sort of promise, I guess, is that what's in the container will run as it, as it says it will, regardless of the, what version of Docker you're running. But mm. that is the kind of thing, you know, you can, you can envisage a problem with that. We've all been there, right, <laughs> at some point in our careers. So. Could you have uh, multiple developers connect into the same container and kind of do like pair programming or team programming or mobbing, something like this? Oh, that's another excellent question. So Visual Studio Code, again, has got that live code extension, and I think it would work, but I've never tried both together. I've used live code and I've used, obviously, dev containers, but I've never tried uh, both together. Yeah, but if VS Code is acting like a client into the the container, then I imagine you could have multiple clients connecting to that same container. I I would imagine so, yeah. 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 I I don't see why not. It would be worth it. Yeah, it would. I'm a big fan of uh, of pair programming and, and mobbing and whatnot. Yeah, so we worth, uh, that, worth looking into that. We've uh, we've done an episode on that as well, and I'm doing that two days a week at, at my current job, helping some juniors, you know, get better at development. And it's pair programming. It's it's fun. It's a bit of a brain drain, <laughs> but it's definitely yeah. fun. I was going to say I did it uh, full time Monday to Friday, eight hours a day for a year in a, in wow. a previous uh, project and uh it was brilliant it was it was tiring as you say it's draining i think being like switched on like that for the whole time but i i, I had to really talk <laughs> yeah <laughs> and listen <laughs> pay attention yeah <laughs> but it's it's funny like the reaction like there's some very very strong reactions from developers when you talk about pair programming some people are not mm. for it in any sense of the word so well i I think if Do you're you doing it five days a week, then yeah, you're you're probably not getting the full benefit, right? And I think Sean's done done some of this mob programming, and they do like, you know, one day a week. And in that case, I think it has a lot of value, right? I think it just depends on how you're using it. Yeah. Do you recommend putting everything into one container or separating out the you know, database into one container, you know, back end another, and and then maybe the front end? I would recommend splitting. So anything which is running as a service, like a database, should go in its own container. I think that's just a general principle with Docker is one process, one container. But and but you know if if you if you imagine like the actual dev, so if you've got like the database and the dev environment, and the dev environment was a blend of front end and back end, like .NET and Angular, for example, then you you would want to install like the command line tools for .NET and Angular in, in one container because that's like the dev environment container, and that's what you're doing in that. Then anything that's hanging off that, any associated services like databases would go in second and third containers, which you can then, you know, you can exec into and 
make changes, do as you will. I imagine this makes testing or unit testing or integration testing easier, right? When using Docker, uh, especially locally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely that, yeah. I, I mean, in, like, so end-to-end testing is difficult because, you know, for example, if you're using Cypress or something like that, Cypress has got a, a UI. It's, required, it's relying on a UI and Docker's headless unless you're using this little Visual Studio code cheat to, to surface a UI. So there's definitely challenges involved in running like automation tests and end-to-end tests with it. But for sure, like uh, unit tests is an absolute breeze. And you could, if you wanted to, for example, have like a, uh, an additional container that was just running the unit tests and just sat and ran them whenever you changed anything, you could, you could easily set that up. When it comes to the, the team you're on, I'm assuming you guys are doing Agile. Most of us are in, doing it in some form or fashion. How does that factor into to how you build and maintain your containers. Is that something that you're given tickets on in the sprint or does that factor into your workflow? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone's doing Agile to some extent, aren't they? But I don't know if anyone's actually doing Agile <laughs> as such. Everyone's just right. got their own interpretation right. thereof. So, yeah, so, you, you know, like talking for the, the current project, I, I, think, I think I just did, did it one day. But the way that you know, if we were being sort of uh, a bit more strict about agile processes, yeah, I think it would go into a ticket, but maybe maybe a chore or or something or something along those lines. You know, something that you would you'd handle in in that way, because you know the, the tickets are always meant to be user centric, of course, and something that's uh, is developer centric like that is is sometimes a bit challenging to to put in to a ticket. Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're dealing with that right now, where we're having to do some spikes and some research tickets and trying to balance that with user enhancements and, and needs is can be a challenge. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and even just writing the tickets, you know, if you're trying to write user centric tickets, how do you do one for setting up a dev container? That's, I, I quite like the idea of of separating it into sort of tickets and you know, call it as you will, but but chores is, is a good is as good a name for it as any, which which would refer to things that are not for the user and are just for the project or for the dev team. And then you can sprinkle in a few, a few of those, and as long as you get the balance right, and you're you're still adding value in every every sprint or every iteration or or however you like. But agile's, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Ag- agile's in a in a tricky place just now, I think, isn't it? It's uh, everyone says it, but nobody actually does it. Right, and and you used to be able to blame waterfalls years ago for failures in the process, and now people blame agile <laughs> for failures in the process. Right. There's you can always find a scapegoat for why things don't work one way or the other. So Yeah, and the whole or like, you know, dev teams buy into Agile, but if the organization doesn't, then it's it's not pointless. There's there's still benefits there. But you know, if you've got a deadline date, then it's waterfall, right? <laughs> if you've got to deliver on a certain <laughs> date, then it's it's, it's waterfall. <laughs> and every project's got there a deadline go. date because <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I always a- feel like with the whole waterfall versus like agile debate, like it's kind of it shouldn't be less like saying, oh, let's go waterfall or let's go agile, but more like they're like points on the spectrum. Like, um, I think you're right. I don't think I've never worked in an organization that can go completely agile and it shouldn't really because, um, you know, for, for one way or, or another, but we should try to take as many of the agile practices that make sense to the project and try to adapt them. And then also continually look back and go, hey, was this working? Um, and if it's working, then continue the practice or improve the practice. But if it's not working, then they just abandon it. Like I've been on projects where, we, you know, we've been we've been told we have to use agile, but we have to use all of the uh, methodology 
like in a very rigid way, like a rigid way. So kind of that kind of makes it not agile, basically, you know, in a way. So <laughs> yeah, even the process has to be agile. You know, that's yeah, that's part of it. But it's, it's quite. It's I think the Agile Manifesto was written in right. two thousand and one. You know, it's twenty years right. old, and there have oh, been mm. you know technological advances in the last twenty years. Obviously, so. mm. we similar to what you said, Andy. Right when the business has trouble buying in, or maybe they just don't understand it, we've run into issues in my current company with that and and the solution has been to basically add more process to our tickets and to the to the whole flow to force the business to to try to understand limitations and get in line and and it's working it adds more overhead but uh right you got to find that balance you know between getting work done and not pulling your hair out if you have any left that is yeah Yeah, yeah, agreed. And I think like it became such like a buzzword, you know, like a management buzzword almost, which is a real pity because if you actually dig into it, it's it's a it's a recipe for writing successful software. But it became a buzzword and everyone said, Oh, we're agile now. What does that mean? Nobody could tell you, you know. It's it's leaked out of software as well. You know, I've heard of uh, like friends of mine in other industries, like engineering disciplines, they they've been told to be agile, which is crazy. You know, if you're building a bridge, I don't really think it can be <laughs> agile. <laughs> Right, right. Hey guys, we're we're gonna finish this eighth of the bridge in this next two week sprint. Yeah. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The bridge will be ready when um, it's ready. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a pity because if you actually read the Agile Manifesto, which is one page, right, with a number of bullet points on it, everyone could do that in in five minutes and think about what it means and explain to everyone on the team what it means then i think it 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 would make your your process better it'd make your software more likely to be successful and that's kind of the point right but people just treat it as another as another buzzword and yeah and make mistakes Mm. and i I think that as well it's often used as like oh we're agile so we don't have to do any planning now (laughs) which is almost the opposite of you know we're agile so we have to do even more planning so that we can be agile but folk will just uh you know take their functional specification and their tech spec and bin them and decide that they're now agile. <laughs> Projects that I've been working on uh, with agile, it, it seems like one of the problems was that they they try to start too early, even before they have the specs really thought out and and planned and and you know wireframes or anything like that. Let's just start coding and yeah. throw it together. And it's like, and then of course everything changes. You know, week the next week, the week after. Okay, well we we don't want to do it that way anymore. <laughs> it's like. Okay, well, let's just throw that out, or, or you get along the, along the way, and then you try to back up and go forward. And it's like so there's times when I just miss waterfall. But, uh, <laughs> At least you knew what you were aiming for with waterfall. You had a, a specification document. Yep. I think a, a key thing that a lot of folk miss with with agile is the importance of UX as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have you need to have someone talking to your customers or your clients, finding out what they actually right. want. And translating that people seem to, to see ux as as an afterthought or as someone to just do wireframes and the discipline is so much more involved than that you know it's a proper sort of client interface yeah i actually First, uh you know, working with well I was, I was gonna say i actually work with our designer on our team we meet twice a week most weeks mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that she struggles with is she has her design her mock-up the look and feel but by the time it actually gets up in production it doesn't look like what she provided right and so part of my job is going to try to be the middleman and make sure that that happens but uh yeah i think i do i agree with you i think most developers either they don't understand ui ux or they're not interested in it and so right it it doesn't have the same uh forethought as some of the other 
pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I am terrible at design. I have very little in the way of artistic <laughs> talent. So I, I always love it when there's a designer on the team so I can just delegate all of that uh, that side of things. You know, one thing that we're actually doing that I feel like fits into Agile, but the business isn't necessarily happy with it, is we'll get a ticket with requirements and everything that they've worked out. They've had backlog refinement meetings and we've done our own backlog grooming and whatnot. And the developer will start on the ticket and get so far in and then they'll realize, okay, well, we're missing this, this and this. We didn't think about this. And they come back and the business is like, oh, okay, great. So can you still get it done to sprint? And they're like, no, because the scope has changed. We got factors. And they're like, ah, why not? Well, because, you know, we came in with a certain understanding based on everybody's understanding of the situation and the application and whatnot. That has changed. You know, we'll, we'll get what we can done around this ticket. And then if we need to create another one or need to expand this one or need to move to the next sprint, we will. And I actually feel like that that's actually working well. But again, you have to be on the same page with the business, right? Because they're thinking, well, we gave you a ticket. You should be able to get it done regardless of what changes you come across. And that's not really the case. Yeah, it's just, it's just not how building software works. You know, there's always unknown unknowns. And sometimes they, they bite you, I suppose. Yeah, I think a lot of that is just, um, uh, I guess, educating the, the, the business on it. Um, like I've been on projects where, um, yeah, like you, you give them an estimate and it's almost like a quote. <laughs> and if you if you don't complete it in, in the time, then you've, you've somehow like stolen money from them or something like that, you know, like, um, but you really have to just t- tell them that an estimate is actually it, what, it, what it means. It's just an estimate. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're the one driving, but you're, you're really just giving them feedback on how long that you think it's going to take. But there's no guarantee that that feature will be developed in that time, you know. And there's always, I always try to tell them that if we're developing a feature and it's reasonably complex, there's always an element of risk that, that it'll blow out. It could also go the other way. It could also be finished really quickly. But, yeah, a lot of it's just um, really educating um, the, the business area at the start to, to make, let them know what how, this is what, you know, software development is really like so yeah but and that's like a key point with agile right like i know it's a bit of a joke to say it'll be ready when it's ready but it, there's an element of truth to that but that just does not fly with with a business and and you wouldn't expect it to really because you know they've got shareholders and they've got customers right and mm. you have to you have to address these uh these needs so there, there really is just a, a like a disconnect between agile development teams and the reality of the way that the business works just mm. like and there isn't necessarily a good uh, a good bridge between it yeah it can yeah. be hard yeah i remember one project i was on we used to do two by twos all the time so it was like how hard it is and uh and how risky it is essentially mm. so you'd go you know you would you place the tickets on this and you'd say all right you know this is really hard and really risky so maybe we should deprioritize this or we should look at this more and break it down that was a really useful way of communicating to the business you know you've asked us to do this and we can do it but it's hard and i have no idea if it's going to take me a month or three months so mm. cool but but even then, there's there's always an expectation that you'll you'll deliver at some point, yeah. a fixed point, <laughs> one way or the other. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I'm gonna move us on to picks then. Uh, thanks, Annie, for the great discussion about uh, dev containers and, and agile and development things like that. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out. 
and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So let's see, since you weren't here last week, Caleb, why don't you go first? What's your, what's your pick? That's a good question. Let me see. Um, <laughs> so there's an app I've been using probably for like the last nine months. And I got a good deal on it. And so I've got it on all of my home PCs, but it's called AdGuard. And it's been a really nice tool for me because once you install it, it's basically, now if you're Big Brother and you want something monitoring all your stuff, then it's not going to be a good fit for you. But it basically monitors all of my browsers, a bunch of my apps. It has a lot of uh, filters. It's got its built, built-in DNS. And it basically, if it can, it blocks ads in general. Um, so I have a much cleaner time working through applications and through the browser and it saves time and money performance wise. Right. So AdGuard is my pick. Okay. All right. Why? What's your pick? Yeah. So I've been doing that kind of classic new year thing with, you know, trying to lose weight, going on a bit of a diet. So uh, I bought a, like a, new, like a new smart scale from from Amazon. And um, yeah, I've been really happy with it. So it's one of those ones where it actually hooks up to an app on your phone and you can kind of see it trend down, hopefully down, as um, as my diet goes. But, but yeah, it's cool. It's like um, it works really seamlessly. So um, And it was really cheap. It was only like like $30 or something. So yeah, um, yeah really happy with it. So which one was it? Uh, it's called the, the Renfo Bluetooth smart scale or something so yeah okay yeah it's got like it's got like a hundred thousand or hundred and seventy five thousand votes on um on amazon on five star voting so all right take votes yeah (laughs) yeah probably but yeah (laughs) all right andy do you got a pick yeah go for it so i was i was always skiing last week and uh I, I was being quite critical of my technique, and I so when I got back, I found this thing called Carve, which is like inlays that you put into your ski boots with pressure sensors in it, and it tells you as you're going along whether you're you're skiing well or or skiing badly. And I just That's I love cool. all that kind of like data. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's just like yeah. instant data analysis, Bluetooth up to your phone. So. Uh, so that's in the post, and the next time I manage to get out skiing, hopefully I'll I'll be getting this digital instructor making me better at it. That is cool, actually. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been skiing, yeah. <laughs> in, or I haven't been snowboarding in in years, but um, that would actually be quite fun. Yeah, yeah. Neither is that, I uh, is that downhill or is that cross country? That is, is so it's for downhill, but I do do a little bit of both actually. Okay, all right, cool. My pick this week is actually going to be .NET's. 20th anniversary so yeah i remember you know i was around back then february 13th 2002 is when uh net was released and so they're having a little bit of a small little celebration uh probably about about the time that this episode comes out so i don't know if you really can catch it live or catch the recordings that are on the website but uh it also depends on when you listen to it so if you want to check it out you can go to dotnet.microsoft.com and then they have also got some, you know, twentieth anniversary backgrounds and swag and things like that. So if you want to pick that up, you can go to that website and pick that up too. I also love the Everybody fact that they, go. huh? 
You remember the day? Yeah. I also uh, love the fact that they have the URL dot net, right? Dot dot net. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Cool. All right, Andy, if, if, if our listeners have questions and they want to ask uh, and get in touch with you, how what's the best way to do that? Oh, uh, I'm not I'm not extremely active on the socials, but uh, Twitter, I suppose, or or okay. LinkedIn. Okay, and we'll put those uh, in the show notes, so it'll be all good there. All right, thanks everybody, and thanks Andy for a great show. If they want to get in touch with uh, me or the show, they can get me on Twitter. I am at .net superhero. Dun, 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 dun. And uh, yeah, Caleb Wells coach, which n- nobody reaches out to me. I'm kind of, I'm kind of lonely, honestly. You're lonely. Y'all, yeah. y'all ping me or I've, something. I've liked all your YouTube videos, huh? Every time I see it, so. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch yep. everybody else on the next episode of AdventuresIn.net. Yeah. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.